0: You're listening to Highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with John Gertner, a feature writer for the New York Times Magazine. Climate change was important to me. I had written a lot about technology. The way to sort of address climate change in in certain ways beyond our politics, beyond our economics, beyond our personal behavior is to come up with technologies that obviously can make it so that we can use clean and renewable energy or other things that will reduce our footprint. And when I was writing about climate change, I sort of became more and more interested in some of these catastrophic projections that were really starting to, I guess, personally upset me, but also captivate me. How bad are things? How bad can things get? And this kind of circles back to that question of, okay, well, how do you tell that story of climate change? And and for me, it was, how do I tell a story that interests me enough to do a book? Books can take a very long time. I think my Bell Labs book took five years, and my Greenland book took about five or six years. And so for me, as I began to think about Greenland, I started to think about sea level rise and melting glaciers and melting ice. And it seemed like a way to tell part of the climate change story. But As I discovered with the Greenland book, I could also tell a story about the process of discovery. Whereas if the Bell Labs book was a book about the process of innovation, discovery is a little different. It's sort of when you find out new things about the world, and then what what do you do with that knowledge? And so for me, writing about Greenland was a sort of exploration of a couple of different questions. One, how do we know what we know about the ice sheets, which is in a way, how did we discover climate change? What was that process like? Because really, I think it's one of the great achievements of modern civilization that we understand climate change, we understand what causes it, we understand too how to address it. The tragedy is that we're not doing that, but that's a separate story. So for me in Greenland, it was a way to look at that history of how we added to our knowledge piece by piece But then on a very just experiential level as a journalist, it was just a wonderful story to meet these incredible characters who had both historically as well as in the present day done some really risky scientific work to explore both the contours of the ice sheet, the surface, to explore the edges of the ice sheet, which would have been the glaciers, and also to drill down into the ice sheet, which is a big part of trying to understand the deeper history of the ice sheet because the ice sheet is really built up of thousands of layers, really hundreds of thousands of layers of snowfalls that have compacted. And early on, about 50 years ago, actually more than that, 70 years ago, scientists began to understand that you could drill down and pull up a core and use scientific technologies to understand how ancient climates were like and how they compare to today. There, There are so many different kinds of writing to do about climate. And uh, for me, I kind of look towards history to sort of understand how we got to the present day. So I think there's probably a couple of things worth saying that, one, our history can explain, I think, a lot of how we got here and what we know. I don't think it can necessarily tell us how to proceed. I think there are some things we can take out of it, such as, say, A respect for nature in some cultures for instance a respect for long-term thinking that come out of sort of native american cultures or inuit cultures or other indigenous cultures that i think very different from how we live today but i do think in many ways the future is really difficult because we have to make it up and we can't look to history what we have is a sort of problem that's so big and so existential and so difficult to solve that we need really the entire world to get together and solve it. And I don't think there's anything in our history that sort of prepares us for what we have to do next. So, you know, I think we have a lot of promising signs where a lot of not just companies are sort of making these zero pledges, but you know, countries of the world are trying to come together and set some sort of guidelines for carbon emissions. But it seems like the real work is still ahead of us. We've made a couple good steps. We know the problem really well we know what to do or what at least what's needed, but those, those questions of policy and politics and how to kind of mobilize governments and how to align people. And, and at least to me, it seems like the world has gotten more contentious, maybe because of the pandemic rather than more willing to sort of Line So that gets into the question of optimism. But I think, you know, history is super important. It doesn't give us a roadmap, but it, it, it's given us a great understanding both of, of what we have to do and how we got here. Your book certainly also profiles these courageous stories, and it gives us examples of the courage and fortitude and resilience. But yes, speaking of the world coming yeah. together, and, you know, COP26, what are your hopes and expectations? I, I think, you know, it depends which week you ask me. <laughs> some Some weeks are more hopeful than others, and I, I don't think that's unusual. I think some journalists feel a lot of skepticism, I think. Uh, we've been waving our arms in many ways, saying, you know, pay attention for years. And as just an example of this, we're reading here in the us about these incredible temperatures on the West Coast right now and the drying of the West and the emptying of these reservoirs. And you know, it came to me that about 15 years ago, I had written a very, very long story about the American West that sort of foretold a lot. And, and I wasn't the only one writing those stories. So we've had many, many years where scientists, environmental community, certainly politicians who are you know, aligned with the environmental community, and journalists have, have sort of been aware of just how bad these problems can get, whether it's drought, wildfire, species extinction, biodiversity problems, melting of the ice sheets, and, you know, we haven't made that much progress. So that said, there there have been these bright spots, whether it's, you know, the Paris Accords. I've also, as I mentioned earlier, I, I find it optimistic that a lot of private corporations, which also give money and influence politics, have made, for instance, Microsoft or Google or Apple, these global tech companies, Amazon, too, have made these kinds of pledges for net zero We'll have to see if it actually, if there's a follow through there. But in my book, there was a scientist, Eric Rignot, who said, if you look at history, we do act when our backs are up against the wall, when things get so urgent that we have to do something, we do. So that is, I think, my expectation now. So, you know, we'll have to see in the next couple of decades, I think, if we can really act fast enough and urgently enough And broadly enough, but certainly, like the Paris Accords are a a very good first step. They're not enough, not nearly enough. And so, you know, to go further and faster is really the race right now. And, you know, you can find different groups or members of the environmental community that are stressing different kinds of solutions. My own feeling is that technology has to play a very crucial role. But one thing that will, I think, be most tragic of all is that if we don't actually do more or do enough to address climate change, it won't be because we didn't know, it'll be because we looked at a problem that was solvable and we didn't solve it. I was talking to a class of students, of journalism students, a few months back, and they asked me, you know, how can you cover climate change because it's so depressing? And, you know, you're watching ice sheets melt and wildfires burn. And you're, you're sort of looking at projections for, for Ascent, the future that, that look very grim. And what I did say is, that, you know, I did spend a lot of years working on those kinds of stories. But I have, over the last few years, looked, I think, increasingly at stories that are about solutions. And, you know, whether it's solutions for taking carbon dioxide out of the air through technology or other kinds of solutions, I think that's been important to me, I think, as a journalist to say, you know, it's not like we don't have options. We really do. And I I don't necessarily think of it as I mean, some people think of it is advocacy journalism, I, I guess I, I would say I, I do have more of a point of view. And, and that would be it's worth covering these things. I'm not sure personally, as a journalist, I could say anything new by just sort of reporting on the endless cycle of drought, or fire, or, or melting ice. Although those stories still do interest me, and I may do them again, that we are at a moment where we, we are really looking at solutions, whether they're political, policy-driven, or whether they're technological, or whether there are some you know cultural solutions or changes of personal behavior which might have an effect, might not, we don't know. But I think that's important to cover. And you know, at least that's where a lot of my thinking goes, I would say, now, when I'm thinking about climate change stories. <music> In closing, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Mm. I mean, I I think one thing I think really worth saying is is that, you know, we're presented with a problem that is really difficult, but that is solvable. And that's something worth remembering. How we solve it is not yet understood. But the fact that we can solve it through policy, through technology, through changes in group behavior seems obvious to me. And I I think that's sort of the great challenge of the next 30 years is sort of, how are we gonna solve this problem? How are we gonna mobilize people and our politicians to do that? Where journalism and writing fits in, and I don't think it's just that, I, I think there's art and there's music, and there's a part in my book about Greenland, for instance, where I noted that you know so, some of the things we can do to sort of motivate people or reach people are not actually verbal. Sometimes they're just visual. I think that if there's a way to, to raise consciousness with integrity, and that doesn't mean you have to be an advocacy journalist, you could just be doing straight journalism, reporting on what you see, but it all makes a difference. It educates us, it helps us understand the world, especially with places like Greenland or like Antarctica or like these very distant places in Canada or Australia that are going through terrible heat waves. For those of us who have the opportunity to do those kinds of stories or artworks or reports, they're very valuable because we act as, I think, the eyes and ears, and we act as representatives or emissaries who can bring back that knowledge and say, you know, hey, this is what I saw, and this is worth paying attention to. And if we can pay attention, I think we can at least move forward we hope you've enjoyed this program if you would like to get involved in one planet podcast or learn more about environmental projects click on subscribe thank you for listening